It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome, everybody, to the Untold Story podcast. Today, we are joined by Omid Scobie, who is the author of Endgame, Inside the Royal Family and the Monarchy's Fight for Survival. He also wrote the bestseller Finding Freedom, which was a look at Meghan Harry's uh, exit from the royal family and their move to California and what happened after that. So this book has gotten a, a lot of attention and I want to dig into all of it with you. So we'll just start right there. Omid, hi, thanks for being here. Great to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Martha. It's good to talk to you. It's good to talk to you, too. So, you know, um, you've been covering the royal family for 13 years or so. I always like to start these Untold Story podcasts by just helping people understand you a little bit. You know, where are you from? Where did you grow up? And, and how did you end up doing this? How, how did this end up as your beat? Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, always wanted to be a journalist ever since I was a kid. I grew up in Oxford in the English countryside with sort of like grand dreams of one day working in sort of like mainstream news or for an entertainment news outlet. And that was very much the path that I went on um, working in entertainment magazines, particularly for the US media. I was an editor at an American publication for about a decade. And uh, it was through that time that I realized how big a part of the story that the royals play when it comes to that sort of American interest. It sort of like overlaps with the entertainment news beat in many cases. And so that was kind of my entry point into that world around the time that William and Kate got engaged. I went on my first engagements with them in 2011. And of course, so much has happened since then. But of course, my interest in the story has also shifted over time. I think where it started out and sort of being interested in them as the the kind of tourist attraction or the kind of uh, the, the, the showy event that the world was always watching. There was obviously a constitutional side of the story that I also felt that was often not making part of the headlines. You know, mm -hmm. we were so focused on who was wearing what and who was doing what that we weren't really thinking about the bigger picture when it came to the royal family and its kind of meaning, role and purpose in Britain and the Commonwealth realms today. And so that's sort of what took me across from the last book to this book, which despite its title, I think a lot of people think I'm declaring that this might be the end for the royal family. And it's more of a kind of warning shot that the end of the royal family as we know it is very much at stake because you know, listen, it was only a year ago we celebrated the life and legacy of the Queen and so much of that period of remembrance was celebrating her um, ability to sort of always be above the fray. She uphold a certain line of ethics, morals and values that I do see missing in some of the royal family members today. And so when we have those questions about what the royal family means in Britain in 2023. I think it's important to look at it from all sides, and hence Endgame was born. Yeah, um, it's interesting. And, and um, that, that's where, you know, I've, I've had sort of a sideline covering the royal stories when they come up over the last um, 18 or 19 years here at Fox. And uh, my, my main focus is politics and um, foreign policy and domestic stories. But, you know, I've covered these stories as well for a long time. And that's what has always intrigued me about it 
is the history, the constitutional monarchy, how it fits into British history and American history on the whole. And I think it's interesting that you said that, you know, about the intersection of coverage of celebrity that sort of goes over into the royal family coverage as well. In that intersection, it tends to focus on this, this sort of, you know, gossipy stuff, right? And yeah. it's funny because one of the things that, that struck me, and you've, you've been deep into the Meghan and Harry story, and I want to ask you about that, um, is that, you know, I remember it being said that, that Meghan sort of thought that she understood the royal family because she sort of thought, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles. They're kind of like celebrities. <laughs> and honestly, I was sort of horrified when I heard that statement. I thought, yeah, it's nothing like that. It's very different from that. How could she have really, is that really what she thought? And did she really have such a limited understanding of, of the history and what it meant to marry into that family and the sacrifices that would have to be made to do that? I mean, I think a lot of that speaks to the way in which the royal family is covered. So much time goes on, as you say, the kind of soap opera, the drama of the story, but also the theatrics, the pomp, the pageantry. And there's very little conversation or sort of public discourse about the actual role of the royal family and the kind of inner workings of the institution. This is uh, an establishment that thrives on its kind of mystique and mystery. And so I think for a lot of people, there are so many sides to the royal story that they just don't know because they're not exposed to it. And I think in Meghan's case, there absolutely was a kind of naivety coming in thinking, well, if I do the work and I just kind of give it my all, that will be enough. And of course, there's so much more to it. And as we saw, she really came up against things that many of which were completely out of her hands and some of which were also just cultural differences. I think her arrival really showed the difference between uh, attitudes in the workplace in Britain compared to America. You know, we all remember those stories about the 5 a.m. emails that Meghan would send and how uh, courtiers and aides didn't like the fact that she was so opinionated about things. I would imagine in the work environment in the U.S., and I've worked in American offices for many years, those celebrated things to be on call 24-7, mm -hmm. to be so sort of like wrapped up in it. I think for the institution, there is this expectation, particularly from working members of the royal family, to sit back and allow the people around you to make those things happen and also to not expect change. This is a, uh, an institution that moves at a snail pace. And it's one of the sort of like dilemmas I think that they face now in our rapidly modernizing and evolving world that we're in, have they moved enough to keep up with those times or are they already beginning to look like relics of the past? Ultimately, it's an institution that should be a reflection of modern day Britain. So then it brings up the questions are, are there practices? Mm -hmm. Are there uh, areas of focus within the family, within their work? Do they um, uphold those modern day values or are they also out of well, touch? Well, it seems like, you know, I think um, the, the Queen managed to to balance those things really well um, yeah. over, you know, the 70 years plus that she reigned. She was able to um, modernize but maintain the dignity of, of the royal yeah. family. And it, she always put that and the country first above her yeah. own 
desires or opinions as a woman. And I think a lot of people see Megan doing the opposite, doing, you know, caring more about her feelings, you know, um, her, the, the things that were wronged, you know, where she was wronged and um, doing this Netflix special and writing the book and all these things. Um, it's interesting to me, just before we started talking, I saw, you know, the, these uh, lists that come out at the end of the year are, um, you know, they can be unkind, but uh, the, the Hollywood Reporter has called the Sussexes uh, on the list of the losers of the year based on the whiny biography, the whiny Netflix special, the worldwide privacy tour at South Park, which they say drove a stake into um, this couple, the public perception of, of Meghan and Harry, because people did actually see their tour as a worldwide privacy tour, um, begging for privacy and doing everything possible to seek the absolute opposite of privacy. Yeah. So what do you say to that? Yeah, you know, it really falls down to awareness, I think. Awareness of the world in which we're in, the state of the world that we're in. I think... Listen, I thought it was really important for Harry and Meghan to tell their story when they left the royal family. But of course, that was uh, then something that went on for quite a while. And I think given that we, you know, particularly in the UK, we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis on the brink of a recession. We have much more important things going on in the world. And there are times where it does feel like rich people problems. Mm -hmm. And as the men and women on the street, we can't relate to that. We only have so much sympathy in the tank before we lose interest. And I think for Harry and Meghan, and I talk about this in the book, they found themselves in this situation where their dilemma, their crisis is that uh, the sympathy has run out. And I think that their story has almost become synonymous with the royal soap opera. But I think this also extends to the wider family in general. One of the things that I talk about in the book is about the kind of the fact that King Charles and Prince William seem to be operating in very separate silos to one another, where the Queen had this very all-encompassing view of the crown. She was never above it. It was always something that she served and that was her complete purpose. She didn't care about what the public poll figures were or whether the press was good or bad. Mm. But you look at the amount of effort and energy from the offices of Charles and William that goes into... PR agendas and making sure that things look a certain way and that they come out on top of the right polls. And I think that these all then boil down to selfish agendas that don't do the royal institution any good, mm. because ultimately they should all be there serving that one thing, the crown. Right. Ultimately, that's the thing that we as Brits pay to have yeah, at the head and, of our and nation. We, and we, we certainly saw that in the coverage at the funeral. It was very clear that what they loved about the Queen was that she put all of these things before herself. And I think that's one of the problems with Meghan and Harry. It seems like it's always all about them. And people, I think you're right, got completely exhausted of it because everybody has their own you know, issues and they sort of felt you know, why, you know, who cares? You know, if you really want to serve, then serve um, people other than yourselves and your storyline. And if you had done that, maybe a lot of things would have been very different. I do want to ask you, obviously, about Endgame, about the book and about the release of the names of the two people who Megan claimed made racist comments asking about what how dark the baby's skin might be um, when she had her first son, Archie. Uh, she brought this up herself in the Oprah interview. I think a lot of people uh, were surprised to to hear her 
say this, mention this, then, of course, it set everybody's, you know, wagging about who it was, who these two people were. And the book in an early draft, you re revealed the names of Prince Charles's cat and Catherine, uh, bean, 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 bean. Uh, the Princess of Wales, as the two people who who said this without, you know, we don't know the context of how they said it. All we have is Megan's interpretation of what they were trying to figure out and what they said. So it came out in the Dutch version of the book, early re release of Endgame in, in the Netherlands. And then it was pulled from the other books. You know, initially you said it was a mistake. This shouldn't have happened. And then it seems like you owned up to, yes, I did write the names in an early version, but I didn't intend for them to come out in the book. Is that true? Listen, it's been a very frustrating experience because the only book I ever signed off on was the book that I spent two months sitting with British barristers and in-house legal teams to make sure every piece of information met the criteria to print as a publication. You know, you know as well as I do as a journalist, we work on stories all the time, but to get it over the finish line, we have, we have to be able to show and tell our information. We have to be able to kind of uphold hold a certain code of conduct when it comes to the various laws and limitations where it comes to libel, etc. And so I was very frustrated to find out that, and it was literally I found out with the rest of the world, that there was this issue with the Dutch publication. And I'm glad that it got resolved. But for me, it was frustrating because it overshadowed many of the more important things I thought were in the book. You know, the conversation that Harry and Meghan referred to in their Oprah interview takes up a page or so in this book. And it, for me, more important than the names itself was just getting to the bottom of a couple of things. One, why did Harry and Meghan bring this up in an interview so publicly without naming names? It started a guessing game and then never discussed it again. They had a Netflix special. They had Harry's memoir. They had these other opportunities to kind of finish the job. And it never, we never heard of the story again. So to me, as a journalist who's covered this story, that itself was a mystery. Come across the letters between Meghan and Charles to find out that they had privately discussed the matter and that although neither saw eye to eye on it, I think for Charles it definitely came across that he wanted to make it clear that if there was any kind of conversation that fit that criteria or fit that description, that it wouldn't have come from a malicious or negative place. And for Meghan, it was highlighting what unconscious bias was. No one ever spoke about racism. It's always been the British press that's used that word. But the conversation they had was over unconscious bias. But of course, Upon coming across the information in those letters, I also discover that there are two individuals that are supposedly part of this conversation, two family members. And so, again, it raised the question of, well, if this was a case of the first woman of colour marrying into the royal family, producing a mixed race child who's sixth in line to the throne, why weren't there bigger conversations with the institution, um, even privately, to at least resolve this issue? Because it doesn't just speak to a petty family drama, it speaks to an institution that represents a very diverse and multicultural Britain. There are many people in Britain that did feel of course. curious and, and, and concerned. But, but I have to about, go back because I, you know, I have to just go back and ask you. So you came across, how did you get these letters between Meghan and Charles? She must have given them to you, shown, you, shown no, them to you. 
I, I think it's always it's it's frustrating that people come to those conclusions because listen, you're a journalist, you know as well as I do that we rely on sources. And when it comes to the royal family, you're speaking with aides, courtiers, members of staff, past and present. When it comes to Harry and Meghan, you're speaking with the people in their orbit. You're speaking with friends of for, former friends of, and the same goes for the royal family members but themselves. But who would have so access to a letter between Meghan and Charles, the King of England? You're saying that that courtiers or family members, they saw the letter or maybe they heard. Did did you actually see the written letter yourself or did you hear about the letter? Let me speak more generally about letters being exchanged between family members and the royal family. These aren't just an email going from one to the other. These are letters that are intercepted by a private secretary or an executive assistant. They are helping compose the replies. They are sending the reply off. They're having sight of the incoming and outgoing mail. So with this letter in question, the letters between Meghan and Charles, there are more than several people that are aware of these letters. In fact, I know that there's a newspaper in London that has actually sat down and witnessed, seen these letters with their own eyes. So it had always been very frustrating to me that there was so much mystery about these letters between us journalists in the press pens, but no one was ever talking about them. Of course, I don't have copies of those letters. So for me to adhere to the correct laws, I then can't talk about the very specifics when it comes to any names. But as I understand it, I think that's helpful. um, So thank you for for clarifying that. But, um, you know, uh, as I understand it, the libel laws in the UK, if, if you're printing something that is true, something that was said in these letters, that they said it was Catherine and King Charles who said this, then you are protected from writing about it if, it, if it's true. Libel is printing something that is false about someone, correct? In the, in the UK, you have to be able to show and tell for any piece of information. That is the law. So in the US, you are, of course, protected under the First Amendment. It's a very different scenario. This book was written to adhere to UK laws. It's the country I live in. It's the country that I wrote the book in and was primarily printing in. And so for me, it was for making sure I adhered to those laws in every way possible. I even spell it out in the book why I can't mention any names. And as I say, it's really unfortunate that the incompetence of a publisher that took on a foreign translation um, let down what should have been bigger conversations about more important things. You know, this book was published in several other countries and languages too, and everyone managed to get it right. Yeah. So, but, but at listen, some point, you wrote that- down those two names in a draft, I mean, this is what, we, and, and it got, it, it went through as that draft. So there was a time when you wrote down those two names, which we just talked about, and you put it in the book. And then you decided that you would not put it in the book. This is what you're saying. And it, and it got out. And I do, I have other things. Is, is that true? Do you want to so, 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 so for this book in, in particular, I spent you know, a year putting it together, there were so many things that I worked on, reported on. Some of those things did not see the light of day. You want to be able to get second and third sources. You want to be able to have proof to back everything up. And so the only version that I ever intended or wanted to have released was a book that I worked on through the legal process and signed off on to go to the printers. The entire process with the Dutch publisher happened completely unbeknownst to me. And it is an ongoing legal 
still matter at the moment. And there are still pieces that still yeah. haven't quite been put together, unfortunately. So do you think Meghan and Harry are um, very upset that the names of his father and his sister-in-law came out in this way because they don't have any opportunity because they don't speak about these kind of things to to say the context of this conversation, which I think in some ways a lot of people can understand that there could be many different contexts to this yeah. conversation. And, and so now their names are out there, but because of the way they operate, they will not, you know, it, it'll be stuck in some people's heads forever who want to believe the worst of them. Context really matters. I think we can only go on what was shared publicly about the conversation. And in Which Meghan's only came words, from Meghan and Harry. Who, yes, um, who obviously were privy to those conversations. Um, that the and, and I think it's important to listen to how it was perceived by a woman of colour who's the only person of colour in the room in these conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, ultimately if it was described as concerns about the darkness of a child and the word concerns is used, I think it's up to everyone involved, those accused, those claiming to give full details, to give the full context. We've only heard from Harry and Meghan's side. For the royal family side, we heard recollections may vary. So it's very clear that it wasn't felt on the other side. But listen, as a journalist, I'm not thinking about what do Meghan, Harry, Camilla, Andrew, whoever, think of what's in this book? I'm thinking about trying to get to the bottom of every story. We often hear things, uh, half-truths. We hear um, stories with gaps in them. We hear things that are repeated, reported on and then completely disappear out of the public narrative. And so I wanted to be able to pick up on some of those key moments in this book to really provide some clarity. The Untold Story continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You say that William is very ambitious, that he uh, wants to sort of push his own agenda um, based on your reporting. I'm not sure that that's, you know, his father is is much is a much older king uh, to take the throne. Yeah. So is that something that you think is perceived within the family as negatively or something that they would want for him to assert himself and to play a large role? Mm. You know, listen, I think it's really important that William is establishing himself as an appropriate heir and a capable heir. But I think at the same time, if we pull back and think to the days of Queen Elizabeth II, it was never ever under question that there weren't universally across every royal family member this unwavering support for her. She was always the number one. There was no undermining. There was no stepping on toes. And we haven't seen that between father and son, Charles and William, since Charles took the throne. It stood out to me that three days after the coronation, we received media briefings from Kensington Palace, that's William's household, to describe that when he has his coronation, he'll do things differently. It will be more mindful of the economic climate that we're in. Um, We heard from William recently talking in Singapore. He said that he hopes that moving forward that his work will have lasting impact, that it will have tangible results, as opposed to just highlighting things. And listen, I think that 
there's a difference between eagerness to take on a role that he's clearly excited about and it's taken some time to reach that point you know it's I can't forget that just five six years ago the British press used to call him lazy of course you couldn't even dare use that word now to describe him because he is doing the work but at the same time it doesn't feel like there is this kind of rally of support around Charles it stands out to me that we haven't seen father and son side by side on any engagements in Charles's first year on the throne it's no secret that Charles is much less popular than the Queen was and could do with a little bit of that popularity from some of the other more popular members i.e. William and Kate to brush off on him and what we see are two households operating very differently very separately and that isn't how the queen did things now am i saying that's right or wrong i'm not i'm leaving mm -hmm. that up to the reader to decide but i'm at least laying it out so we understand the inner workings because yeah. it is very different yeah, is to the new elizabethan era that we were in yeah um you you talk about kate a bit and you say that um you know that she's posher than William and that she took elocution lessons, um, would that be surprising? It seems like it would almost be de rigueur for someone in her position to no. take elocution lessons because she wants to, um, you know, she, she wants to be sort of uh, elegant and regal yeah. and, um, and speak very well. Uh, so is that, that seems like a positive. No, I don't. It's absolutely not included as a negative. I think that she has established herself as a very um, capable wife to the heir to the throne and wife to the monarch. Um, she has not put a foot wrong when it comes to her public duty. And, you know, I talk about in the book that she, even in the eyes of the Queen, was a very sort of like pliable member of the royal family. She came in, she did the work, she adapted in a way that I think is very difficult, almost uh, unhumanly possible. You know, I think we've seen how many women have married into the royal family before and really struggled with that mm. sort of... Um, expectation to just sort of fall in line and maintain that sort of stiff upper lip, uh, that stately detachment, um, as I describe it in the book, at all times. But I think, actually, she's achieved something that I don't think even one other living member of the royal family today has achieved, which is we know very little about Kate, and that has been very intentional. Where with William, with Charles, with Camilla, for various reasons, we know their lives warts and all. They have sources speaking on their behalf. They have done things publicly that have changed their reputation for good. For Kate, it's still that mystery and mystique that I think is so important to the royal family. The last person to have that was the Queen. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It sounds I an awful lot like the Queen, um, who felt that you know her own feelings or misgivings uh, were not important. That what, what was most important was the role that she was there to um, to exemplify, sort of you know the country more than yeah. her own personality. It, it allows. It allows the public to project onto you what they want from you or what they see they need from you. And that's what, that worked really well for the Queen. And I think that Kate manages to do that 
as well. Um, but I also talk about her in the book as a human being. You know, what we're describing is very unnatural. It's not possible to live that way 24-7. And so I wanted to just describe also the realities of having to make those sacrifices um, because I think it is such a rare thing to witness, especially in modern day the modern day world we live in, the world of oversharing and over everything. Well, Here we I have think that might be why she's so opposite. popular because people are so tired of everyone oversharing um, <laughs> and talking about themselves all the time and selfie and social media culture and, you know, focusing on all of these uh, sort of things that I think a lot of other people find boring, um, that they admire that perhaps about her. And uh, if that's her goal, she seems to be achieving it. I'm running out of time, Omid. I could talk to you for another two hours easily, but I want to ask you one more question. Do you think that Harry and Meghan will ever return to the United Kingdom? And do you think that they have, you know, does, does he want to return and she doesn't want to return? And is that a friction? between the two of them? No, I think that, you know, I think what got lost in so much of the coverage around their departure was the fact that this was Harry's doing. This was his mission. This was his want. This was the, the move that he wanted to make. And I, um, I was with um, Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, on her last engagement as a working royal with two other journalists. And one of the things she said to us was, I was willing to really give it my all. It didn't have to be this way. And that really kind of solidified to me that it was Harry very much in the driver's seat. I think today we see two of them now living their own lives in California and kind of finding the autonomy that they wanted, it's obviously come at great expense. You know, their reputations have taken a beating along the way. Mm -hmm. But I think that from everything I understand from the people around them, they truly are happy in the decisions that they've made and the world that they've created for themselves. And that world doesn't include ever returning to the royal fold. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, it, it seems to me that... Um you know, that's the way the royal family interpreted it from the beginning. It was a decision um, that I think the family did not want uh, by all accounts. And that um, but once you make that decision and you separate yourself, then you have to deal with the consequences of that, which means that you you are not in the family really anymore. So I think a lot of the things that happened along the way um, are, you know, of their own choosing and, and positioning. No, as you point it's, out. it's a. It, the decision to leave was theirs, but I think one thing that often gets lost in the conversation is the fact that for two years they did want to make it work and, and were very vocal internally about what wasn't working. And ultimately, as Harry describes in his memoir, when you're the spare, you're just not a priority. If you're the wife of the spare, you're also not going to be a priority. And so but ultimately, if they had stayed in, in their roles and continued to do their work, they, that, would not, that wouldn't have changed at all. They would have been absolutely part of the team. Yes, no. You know, I, I spend a good 15,000 words in the book talking about all of the times that family members had used information and people working in the fa in the palaces had used information about Harry and Meghan as sort of currency with uh, many of the British newspapers in order to elevate their own principles or the people that they worked for. And ultimately, that was something that Harry and Meghan were unable to stop.
So even before things got as bad as we knew publicly, behind palace walls, there was still so much going on that really ultimately made those first fractures and the relationship in the first place. You know, this is a family that ultimately, because of their role, because of the purpose, they're unable to... Um, act or move in a way that a family does. You know, there are dozens of aides and courtiers in between every yeah. family slight and grievance, and, and they're not able to operate in that way. It's, it's you know, no different to any other big corporation, but yeah, ultimately they're all connected It's a family and a firm at the same time. <laughs> um, we got to leave it there. Uh, I thank you so much for your time. It's really interesting to talk to you and to get a little bit deeper into your perspective of, um, of this story that you have covered uh, very deeply for many years. So thank you, Omid Scobie, the author of Endgame, for joining me today inside the royal family and the monarchy's fight for survival. I hope we can talk again as the story moves forward. Definitely. Thanks, Omid. Thank you for having me, Martha. Great to talk to you. You've been listening to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure to rate and review. For more podcasts, go to foxnewspodcast.com. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.